All right. Well, thank you, Dave, for leading us in a few songs of worship. Tonight we're going to be looking at Genesis chapters 4 through 6, if we make it. That's the plan, Genesis chapters 4 through 6. I titled the message, Ruling Over, and we find that early on in Genesis chapter 4, that term to rule over. And so it's something that God instructed Cain to do that he was not willing to do. And I believe it's still an instruction for those in this life who want to walk in fellowship with God. And so we'll look at that as we get into our text today. But looking at Genesis chapter 4, and if we get through it, We'll get into chapter 5, walking with God, and then chapter 6, finding grace. So I want to go ahead and open us in prayer and ask God to bless the teaching of his word. Thank you for this night you've given us to come together to worship you, to look into your word. We thank you, Father, for the traveling mercies that you have given those in our church family. I know some traveling now, some kind of going back and forth this weekend as well. And so, Father, we just pray your grace be upon those as summertime kicks in with school having come to a close. And we just pray, Lord, that you would watch over the families as they're out and about this summer. Pray for our nation, Lord. We know that revival is needed. Lord, a move of your Holy Spirit in our nation is something that we are to pray for and Lord, to anticipate as well. We know the answer, ultimately, Lord, is people's hearts conforming to your will. And Lord, we live in a nation where we're not seeing a lot of that any longer. So we pray for this nation, Lord, and we ask that you would be with her, that you would restore us, Draw us close to you once again. Bring revival to your church. And be with us tonight, Lord, as we look over your word from Genesis chapters 4 through 6. That's our goal. But, Father, we just want to learn from you. We want to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, to this church, this night. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a lot of chapters, so I may not read every single verse. We're going to kind of roll through this a little bit, but... I want to get through working through the Bible and uh, to go at a snail's pace, often what I do, especially on Sunday mornings. But on Wednesdays, I was accustomed to doing two or three chapters, kind of looking at the chapters, seeing what was actually the context of them. And there are rich stuff here. I'm not saying that there's not. But we're going to look at what the Word of God tells us about creation, the beginning of this earth. We've already saw how God formed the earth, how God created man and then gave man, gave Adam, his wife Eve, how they sinned against the Lord. They were put out of the garden. And now we find that there's a call to Adam and Eve's descendants, one of their descendants, to rule over. So this is the key verse to me. Although there could be many, but Genesis chapter 4, this ruling over, this thought to rule over, God saying to Cain, Genesis 4, 7, 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And so that's just the key verse to carry us into the chapter. Uh, God instructing Cain to rule over the sin that was lying at his door, the sin that desired his life, his heart. And as we know, Cain refused to rule over it. So we get into the chapter. It tells us of this one person who had this unwilling heart, that of Cain. And in this chapter, we find the account of Adam and Eve's sons and Cain, Abel, and Seth. I know Lily doesn't like the way I say that, but I can't help it. It's S-E-T-H. That's how it comes out of my mouth all the time. Today I was going Beth, Seth, Beth, Seth. It, it all sounds same. Put a different letter at the front. She accuses me of trying to put a Z there, but it's not one of my intents. But we're going to have to deal with it in chapter 4. I hear about this every time I say this name, so I'm just getting it out of the way. I'll say it wrong, <laughs> apparently. But I don't hear it wrong. That's my wife. We get in this chapter, we deal with the three sons. Cain, we find, was a farmer. And so the Bible tells us in verse 3 that he brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground there to the Lord. And Abel, being a shepherd, he brought, verse 4, firstling of his flocks and their fat. So we discover as we get into this, verses 1 and 2 tell us that Adam and Eve conceived and bore a son and named him Cain, saying that I've gotten a man out of the earth. Some thought is that Eve was thinking that perhaps Cain was the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. Remember that from last week when Satan was being cursed by God and we have the first gospel given to us in Scripture in Genesis 3.15 that says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So some believe that perhaps Eve was thinking, I got the man child that God promised me. Of course, Cain, obviously not the man child, but she bore a son and I've gotten a man from the Lord. She also gave him a brother, Abel. And it tells us that Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain was a tiller of the ground. And so it's very natural to find that Cain was a tiller of the ground. He was a gardener. He was a farmer, we might say today. So he brought the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel was a shepherd. He brought the firstling of his flock and their fat to the Lord. So why... Did Abel find acceptance and Cain find rejection before God? Both offerings came from the work of their hands. So it might seem unfair that God rejected Cain's offering. However, there could be some other things at play that had not yet been written out to us in Scripture. But I believe some things that Cain and Abel would have learned from Adam and Eve. First of all, we find that when Adam and Eve fell in Genesis chapter 3, 
They originally tried to cover their sin by sewing fig leaves together to make a covering for themselves. God told them that that was not sufficient. He killed an animal, made a covering of skin to cover their body, so he killed what we would assume a lamb. It doesn't tell us what type of animal, but made a covering for Adam and Eve. Blood was shed in Genesis chapter 3 because of sin. And so the blood atonement was set into play as early as Genesis chapter 3. Here we are in chapter 4, and we find that Abel is offering the blood and also their fat there upon the altar, although this stuff wouldn't be given to us by law until Moses brings the children of Israel out of Egypt. We find that was a custom for those who worship God. As we go through the book of Genesis, we will discover offerings being made, and it often, the offerings have the blood. I don't know of any occasion where someone like Abraham or Isaac or Jacob offer the fruit of the ground. They may have done that. I'm not saying that they never did. I'm just saying that when we read about them giving offerings in Scripture, Noah giving an offer in Scripture, the blood was shed. So blood atonement. And thus, along with Cain's offering of first fruits, he should have offered this blood atonement to the Lord. But also we find that Cain had an attitude problem. For after the Lord asked Cain about his attitude, God gave him this warning of the danger of sin, a warning that he did not heed. In verse 6, it tells us the Lord saying to him, asking, why are you so angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So that is always true, even to this day for any of us. Sin is always lying at the door. There's always the occasion to sin. God's desire for us is to rule over these things in our lives. He gives us, actually, as Christians, the power of his Holy Spirit to help us. He doesn't leave us alone in the process, but there is this constant battle to do right to walk in righteousness in the ways of the Lord. So God had asked him, and he gave him warning, and he told him his responsibility to rule over. But instead, Cain killed Abel because he was unable to rule over the sin that laid at his door. In verse 8, And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So it's not surprising that God did not respect Cain's offering, for God always looks at the motive of the hearts of those who worship him. God looked at Cain and Abel, and he saw with Cain that there was an issue in Cain's heart. There was an issue of sin close to Cain's heart. He had not yet crossed over prior to this offering, but after giving the offering of the fruit of the ground, he would cross over sin would have its rule over Cain instead of Cain ruling over sin. God always looks at the motive of the heart. In Psalm 51:17, this is something that David recognized, saying the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. 
These, O God, you will not despise. So I believe it was more about the heart condition than anything else with Cain. Although I do believe that God has set in play already the blood atonement with the example given in Genesis chapter 3. And then there's this uh, phrase that when God came and approached Cain and saying, where's your brother Abel? And Cain responding to him, am I my brother's keeper in verse 9? Am I my brother's keeper? Why are you asking me? I said that to my dad once when he asked me about my cousin who used to attend our church. It's like, where's your cousin been lately? It's like, am I my brother's keeper? My dad didn't like that response. (laughs) He got on me about it. Maybe because he read Matthew Henry. In fact, the Matthew Henry second shelf down from the top is my dad's up there. The commentary's there. And this is what Matthew Henry said about my brother's keeper. A charitable concern for our brethren as their keepers is a great duty, which is strictly required of us, but is generally neglected by us. Those who are unconcerned in the affairs of their brethren take no care when they have opportunity to prevent their hurt in their bodies, goods, or good name, especially in their souls, do, in effect, speak Cain's language. Perhaps the reason my dad didn't like my response to him that day when he asked me about my cousin is because I was at that time speaking the language of Cain. Philippians 2.4 says, Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We are to live other-centered lives, and we are to be concerned for others, and especially family. So judged by our righteousness, verses 10 through 15, we find God coming to Cain, verse 10, saying, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hands. And when you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. So God had already noticed. This is something I noticed as I was reading this. God had already cursed the ground for Adam's sake, for man's sake, for sin. He said, Adam, the ground is cursed for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it. So it was already bad. Thorns and thistles were already there. They sweat just like we sweat when we're working in the yards, the gardens. But it was going to be worse for Cain. Whatever conditions were like, they were in the beginning after God had cursed the ground for the sake of man. Because God did not curse Adam. God did not curse He who was created in his image, but he cursed the ground for his sake. For Cain, it would be that much worse. No longer would the ground yield its abundance for him. And moreover, Cain would become this fugitive, this drifter upon the earth. And Cain said to God, my punishment is more than I can bear. And 
if anyone would find me, they will kill me. Which, obviously, he's referring to the other brothers and sisters. Maybe by this time there were some cousins and around. But and so God set a mark upon Cain. Verse 15, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. So if you think Cain's judgment is bad, you touch him, it'll be seven times bad on you. So three things before we move on. First, unlike Cain, Abel did what was right in the sight of God by offering a more excellent sacrifice. Hebrews 11.4 tells us this. We have a little bit of information about Abel in the New Testament, and here's one of those verses. Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. He being dead still speaks. Jesus said Abel's blood continues to cry out as a witness of his unjust death. When Jesus responded to the religious rulers of his day, he said that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Matthew 23:35. So judgment was going to come, but notice that Jesus put parentheses around the righteous blood that had been shed, beginning with Abel, saying the blood of righteous Abel. And third, it's often a question, what was the mark that God put on Cain? Well, we don't know. The Hebrew word translated as mark is oath. Probably saying it wrong, but oath, as we know, taking an oath, O-A-T-H. This is O-W-T-H. It refers to having a mark, a sign, or a token in Scripture, it's found 79 times, and usually it's referring to a sign when it's used in Scripture. The Hebrew doesn't identify what kind of mark this was that God put upon Cain. Whatever it was, it was a sign. It was an indicator to other people. If you kill this man, his judgment seven times will come upon you. And the focus was not really what was the mark. The focus was that God would exact vengeance against Cain and anyone who would choose to kill Cain would, it was a warning to them, upon you sevenfold will be this curse. And it appears that it worked. One thing the Bible does not teach, something that I heard when I was a child, is that the mark was black or brown skin. And those who in the church who have taught this, they did so by adding to God's word without having any scriptural support. So I heard that as a child, not being taught in the church, but I heard it. I don't know the exact location, but we need to be careful not to add to or take away from the word of God. The word doesn't tell us what the mark was, 
The purpose of the mark was a warning for others. And so God gave that warning through putting a mark on Cain. But also God showed mercy to Cain. And this is amazing. And God is an amazing God. In 16 through 24, as we finish out or get close to finishing out the chapter, we get a little bit of the genealogy of Cain. And our merciful God allowed Cain to have a family, to even build a city. And one of Cain's descendants, Lamech, he had two wives. His wife, Ada, had two sons. Jabel was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And Jubal was the father of those who play harp and flutes. And from his wife, Zillah, came Tubal-Cain, the instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. I giggled there because thinking about the craftsman side of this, one time I was working in a glass furnace. We were rebuilding a glass furnace as a brick mason. Very hot work. First day in, the masons came in. Planks were catching on fire because the stone was so hot. Glass melts and the furnace would run at 2,200 degrees. And so they shut it off for three weeks, and then we showed up. But it had not yet cooled down all the way. It was hot. But I had met some boys, some bricklayers from Ohio, that actually knew what they were doing to be partnered with the bricklayers from Illinois that somewhat knew what we were doing. We, you know, we came in there to help, but they had the knowledge of building these furnaces. And we came to a divide. We're both Christians. We came to a divide over music in the church. I was a musician. I was in a band at the time. So I didn't have a problem with music in the church. And his church did. No music, Church of Christ. No music in the church. I asked him why. He said, because one of Cain's descendants created the harp and the flute, musical instruments, therefore it's bad. Also, one of Cain's descendants created tents, and they had livestock. So with that same argument, can't have family camp, no tents, they're bad. No livestock, quit eating your steaks, pigs. You know, the argument, if you play it through, you just can't take portion of it. And then, verse 22, Tubal Cain, he was an instructor of every craftsman, well, bricklayer buddy, a descendant of Cain was a craftsman. He was a bricklayer. He worked with iron. You're in the wrong trade. I mean, you, it's just not logical. They're taking an argument from one verse of Scripture without looking at the context. And that's why I giggled when I read craftsman because it reminded me of a bricklayer once that had an issue with me and my band playing music in churches. And although a father or mother may sin, here's something we need to think about. It is not the nature of God to require a child or grandchild to pay for the sins of a parent or grandparent. Although generational sin does exist, each generation has an opportunity to walk in fellowship with God. My grandfather on my dad's side, he was a alcoholic and an adulterer my dad would say he was a womanizer and an alcoholic he divorced my grandma when my dad was 12 years old 
My dad did not speak of his dad. He had no good relationship. He felt abandoned. And so my dad was raised on welfare and in a very difficult time. (laughs) One time I asked him why he never wore Levi's, never wore blue jeans. He goes, that's government clothes. That's what we got when we grew up. They gave us government-issued clothes. They were jeans. And so when he became an adult, I'm not wearing government-issued clothes. I got him a pair of Levi's toward the end of his life, and he started wearing uh, Levi's once again. But there was that mindset. His dad, my grandfather, was a bad and not a faithful man. My dad was not. He could have followed, and he actually began following that path as far as the drinking and smoking was concerned, but the Lord got a hold of his heart. According to Ezekiel 18.10, the soul that sins shall die. The son shall not bear guilt of the father, nor the father bear guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Sadly, Lamech followed the way of his grandfather, took a life of a young man who had wounded him. And for his crime, Lamech declared to his wives, if Cain, verse 24, if Cain be avenged seven times, then Lamech 77-fold. So although the sins of a father are not hereditary, those who are without God or today without Christ, often will teach their children to walk in the ways of unbelief. Now, here's something that we're hearing about a lot, especially over this last year. The term systemic racism, I have a hard time getting that S out there, I guess, suggests that race-based discrimination is ingrained or inwoven into the rules, the laws, the traditions of our country. But the biblical perspective that all people, we are, we bear the image of God. We're individually accountable before God, all subject to the same moral code, this code that God has set before us. It's really foreign to non-Christians. And so we're hearing a lot about this critical race theory Systemic racism being taught over and over again in our society. Last fall, I had a class that I took regarding critical race theory. It was uh, critical thinking was the name of the class that I took. And I, I answered this question three times, got it wrong every time. But now, over the last several months, I understand I was being stubborn. I was answering the question not the way the teacher wanted me to answer it because I didn't think it was right. But it is the mindset of some in our country today, many in our country today, actually. So the question was basically this, that uh, older white men are considered racist in our society. And I'm like, no, not necessarily. In my mind, It is the soul whose sin shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of his father, nor the father bear the guilt of his son. It depends. So my mind is it depends. It's not a true or false. It's a, well, it depends on 
whether the white guy, the brown guy, the black guy, if they're decent people, then no. If they are, then yeah, they, they're responsible for their sin. But that's not what our society teaches now. Modern cultures impacted, though, by Christian heritage often take for granted the civil rights, the racial equity, the freedom that have been embedded in our society. Perfect? No, we are not perfect, nor is the United States perfect. But if you try to strip God out of our nation, it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. And they are trying to strip God out of the equation. If some law or tradition or interpretation of the law truly is unfair, then it needs to be dealt with. And Christians should be at the forefront of dealing with such laws. So we need to uh, be careful of what's going on. We need to stand for truth in our society. There is a segment of our society that is no longer standing for truth. And they're trying to change. They want to rewrite the country that we know. And they may succeed in doing so, but they will not get the country they desire. So Adam and Eve, we finish out, having a third son, verses 25 and 26. Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and named him Zeth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. As for Zeth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So their third son, a replacement, maybe from Eve's perspective, God has given me a son. Again, it could be that she's looking back at that Genesis 3.15 passage. Cain was not the son. Abel is dead. Maybe Zeth is the son that God has promised in Genesis 3.15. But although he was not the Messiah, that's the truth of this promise in Genesis 3.15, talking about the messianic promise of God, he is in the line of the Messiah. He became part of the messianic line. The Bible tells us that after his son Enosh was born, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. One of the translators said this could be translated, men began to call themselves the Lord's. I like that. I belong to Jesus. I'm Jesus's. I belong to him. So two final thoughts, questions that often come up. Well, I mentioned this one already, that sin is often lying at the door. And the Lord has required us, just as he required Cain, to rule over that sin. Not to allow sin to dominate our lives, but to dominate the sin, to rule over it, in the sense that we walk in righteousness with God by allowing, and the way we do this is by allowing Jesus to rule over our hearts. He's the one that gives us the strength to rule over. And secondly, the question that's often asked, where did Cain get his wife? Well, it's pretty obvious. He had to marry his sister. It may seem odd to us today, but in the beginning, Cain had no other options. So we get to chapter 5. It's a genealogy. I mentioned this on Sunday. I titled this Walking with God. 
And the key verse I gave to this was Genesis 5.22. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. Enoch walked with God. So we have a set of 10 heads, the genealogy of Adam through his son Seth, all the way down to Noah. So 10 figureheads named for us here in this passage. He begins in verses 1 and 2 with just kind of a, a brief recap of the creation of mankind. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them, called them mankind in the day that they were created. So he he created them in his image, God, a triunity of father, son, and spirit. We, a lesser triunity of spirit, soul, and body. He made them male and female. God only gives two options there for genders, male or female. But he also blessed them and called them mankind. Some might like to say humankind or womankind. I looked up the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is Adam. He called them Adam. It might be pronounced slightly different in the Hebrew, but it is still A-D-A-M, Adam. So Adam lived 100, verses 3 through 5. Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image named him Zeth. And after he begot Zeth, the days of Adam were 800 years. He had sons and daughters. So all the days of Adam lived were 930 years and he died. And so we find from verses 3 to 32 a pre-flood genealogy of Adam's descendants, we have 10 ancestral heads named for us here. And they're in groupings of three verses each, except for three exceptions. And we'll see those as we go through. I'm not going to read the verses. I'm going to give us the recap on each one because they get a little redundant in how they're phrased. Basically, you can just change names and years and you have about each grouping saying about the same thing, just dealing with different individual and their offspring. And so in verses 3 through 5, we just read this. Adam was 130 years when his son Zeth was born. Afterwards, he lived another 800 years having sons and daughters and then died at the ripe old age of 930. I know our minds can't fathom this, but... Uh, In the beginning, God made things a bit differently in the sense of sin had not yet totally degenerated our bodies in the world that we find ourselves in today. That was happening, and we'll see the lifespans shorten until later on in Scripture it'll say that the year of man is 70 years. If lucky, 80 years, it becomes more like what we see today. But it was not so in the beginning. Verses 6 through 8, we have Zeth, who fathered Enosh. We already read about that. He did so when he was 105 years old. Don't know what he was waiting for, but I guess if you live to be 912, you can wait around to have children. You got time. 
So he lived another 807 years having sons and daughters. He died a bit younger than his dad at the age of 912. 9 through 11. Enosh was 90 years old. He was a young man when he begot Canaan. And for the next 815 years, having sons and daughters, died at the age of 905. 12 through 14, at the age of 70, Canaan had a son, Mahalalel. And for the next 840 years, Canaan and his wife gave Mahalalel many brothers and sisters until Canaan's death at 910. Mahalalel fathered his son, Jared, at the age of 65, really getting young there. You kidding that young whippersnapper? 65 having a kid? Can you imagine that? Anyways, we think of that with teenagers today. In their mindset, I guess he would have been. As his forefathers before him, Mahalalel had sons and daughters for the next 830 years, living 895 years. Jared was 162 when Enoch was born. Perhaps Jared waited, thinking, you know, I really want to get my life together. I want to get financially sound before starting a family. That's some of the things that we hear today, right? And he would live 962. So at this point, the longest living known man. Now, four verses are given to Enoch's life, verses 21 through 24. So everyone grouped in threes, except for three exceptions. This is one of those exceptions. 21 through 24 is used to describe Enoch's life. Enoch was 65 years old when he begot Methuselah. And then notice it says, we get into the text. And let's go ahead and look at that one. This one's important for us. So Enoch lived 65 years, verse 21, begot Methuselah, verse 22. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and begot sons and daughters. So that has always stood out to me. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. Did fatherhood deepen Enoch's faith with the Lord? Perhaps. Perhaps it did It wouldn't surprise me because often children can cause parents faith to deepen. Children can cause people to grow up. Man, I got a kid now. I I can't do the things I used to do before I had a family. And then the Bible goes on to say, verse 23, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Verse 24, Enoch walked with God. He was not for God took him. And so Enoch, according to scripture, never died. He just was not. God took him. So Methuselah, back to our three-verse pattern, 25 through 27, Methuselah had a son, Lamech, at the age of 187 and continued having sons and daughters until his death at 969. So the earth's longest living man, Not according to Guinness World Records, but according to God. I'll take God's record on that one. Then Lamech gets four verses also. At the age of 182, Lamech had a son named him Noah, which means rest. Noah was comforted 
was comfort really to Lamech and his wife. Seeing the fall of man had caused God to curse the ground for man's sake, causing them to work, to toil for their daily bread. And for the next 595 years, Lamech having sons and daughters, dying at the beautiful age of 777. Now, we'll probably mention this again, but if you look at the genealogies, you time out the lifespans of these individuals with the flood and Noah and the flood, you will discover that the day that the Lord sent the flood upon the earth is also the day that Methuselah and Lamech died as well. They died in that same year, maybe not the same day, but within that same year. I'm not saying it was because of the flood, but the years and the numbers the Bible gives us all brings us to the year of the flood with Methuselah at 996 and Lamech 777. By the time Noah was 500 years old, he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephath. And the remainder of their story is found in chapter 6 through 9. So the Bible tells us Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. But also that after Enoch had Methuselah, he walked with God. After Enoch had his son, Enoch walked with God. I always love this because I look at my own family once again. This is a positive thing that I'm looking at. And it could be said of my mom, Doris, that after she had Donna, Helen, and Janice, her, my three sisters, mom walked with God. Mom's faith in Jesus had a domino effect upon many other lives with my dad, my sisters, myself, my wife, my children, my nieces, nephews, cousins, many others come into faith in Jesus Christ. But there was something that happened in my mom's life that caused her to tell my dad one day, John A., I'm taking the girls to church. You can come if you want to. After she had a family, she began to walk with God. Let me encourage you today to be a person who walks with God. You may have children or you may not, but your walk with God can so impact those around you to help bring them into faith in Jesus Christ. So Micah 6.8 tells us, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. After Enoch had Methuselah, the Bible tells us that he walked with God. What a great way to, I believe, close out this message. Just a reminder for us tonight. We'll get into chapter 6 next week. But the importance of walking with God and uh, the impact that that can have on other people's lives. I've seen that testimony in my own life. I've I already told you about my grandfather. I've mentioned him before, Earl Pinnell. Not a man of God. In fact, a man that I never knew. He died when I was four years old. And I have no memory of my grandfather except for coming out of the church or the funeral home, whatever the case might have been, and asking who that man was in that box. I just never even been at a funeral before. It was just I didn't know the person. He was a man that did not walk with God. And some of his sons 
took the hard road. They followed their dad. And I have cousins that are paying the price of that to this day. But at the age of 28 years old, because my mom, after the girls were born, mom, Doris, walked with God. At the age of 28, my dad began that walk with God as well. And combined, they became a Christian couple that just influenced and had impact in our communities over in Zion, Illinois, in the harbor, in Waukegan, on the east side of our county. They had impact on many people because they walked with God. Their impact was so strong that I developed a relationship with Christ at a young age and came to follow Christ as my Savior, but also called into ministry. And I tie back to mom and dad and their faith, their example that they set before us. And and I think in many ways, Lily and I have been able to set a better example, maybe not better because we're better than mom and dad, but just because we've walked with the Lord longer than mom and dad had the opportunity to walk on this earth. We've had more time to grow in our faith and we're able to pass it on to our children, to the next generation. And it's my prayer that the next generation, my son, my daughter, would have a stronger faith than even my faith and my grandchildren. But it begins individually. Remember, God judges the heart of each individual. The man who sins will die, but not his son, not his daughter. Our country is trying to teach us opposite things than the truth of God's word. But one thing we need to know is the relationship with God matters. To walk with God is how it all begins. Here at Calvary Chapel of Lake Villa on Wednesday evenings, I close this out. We've been doing the ABCs of salvation. I just want to rehearse those now for those who perhaps are watching through Facebook or through listening through the radio right now. Maybe you desire, you know, my walk hasn't been right with God. I've never had a walking relationship with God, but you want to do that today. Maybe it's a restoring of that relationship It still begins with these ABCs to admit to God that you are a sinner and to ask for his forgiveness. The Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to admit to God that we are sinners. The B is for believe. Believe in the work that Jesus did upon the cross, his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension back into heaven. Receive that gift of salvation from God. The Bible tells us in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have to believe in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And C, we need to confess. Confess our faith in Jesus Christ to Jesus that we believe, but also to share that faith with others. The Bible tells us in Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10:13. whoever calls upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. Whosoever, the old King James would say, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're listening on the radio, watching through social media, you have questions, please email us at cclv at comcast.net, cclv at comcast.net. We do appreciate your support of our ministry. Again, if you're on the radio or listening through Facebook, you can find out information about gifting or tithing to Calvary Chapel at cclv.org forward slash donate cclv.org forward slash donate this coming sunday we're going to the throne room revelation chapter 4 a tremendous chapter where we see a glimpse of the throne room of god this coming sunday at 10 a.m here at the church or on wlgs radio or through facebook Father, we thank you for your word that you've given us this day. We thank you, Lord, that you do not hold the sin of a father or mother against their children. Just as Cain was cursed because of the evil thing that he had done, you allowed him to, you punished him, you worsened the curse, And he was a farmer, and it was going to be hard for him to farm. But he also built, he had families. His family, Lord, inventing tents and instruments and craftsmen. Lord, we thank you that though our past, our family's past may be difficult, Lord, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away all things have become new. So I pray, Father, that we know that, that we are new creations in you. Help us to walk as such. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless.